We're continuing our series called Echo on the Ten Commandments with the Third Commandment. We'll get the text from Deuteronomy chapter 5 today. God says, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox or your donkey, nor any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. This is God's word. So to remind us kind of where we are in our sermon series, Echo is a series that actually has multiple manifestations, hopefully over the many years that I get to be your pastor, where we're going to go through the six chief parts of Christian doctrine, the six things that if you understand them, you understand Christianity. There are, of course, lots of interesting details that you could explore in Christianity, but these six things are the things that make Christianity fundamentally work. A couple years ago, we did the Lord's Prayer, if you're interested in that study. Uh, This year, of course, we're doing the Ten Commandments. Hopefully from there, we will go on with the Apostles' Creed, Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the Ministry of Confession and Absolution. Uh, But for now, we're on the Ten Commandments, and the Third Commandment is what we're taking on today. Now, about a year ago, almost exactly, uh, I preached on this exact same text in a series called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which for my money is one of the most important series that I preached at Cross of Life. Um, If you have not heard this series or this sermon, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Uh, If you were not part of Cross of Life last year, We're glad that you're here. You should go listen to this because this is important. It's foundational for what it means to live a wise Christian life. And even if you were here last year, it's really good to go back and listen to these things because sometimes they hit a little bit different when your lifestyle or your life has changed um, or maybe you just don't remember certain things or certain things hit you the first time and didn't hit you the second time. Uh, It's important to go back to these things and meditate on these things. So I'm going to link this sermon in our newsletter that goes out every week and I'm going to rebroadcast it on our podcast this week. So if you are subscribed to either of those things, you'll be able to go back and listen to it. But today, I'm going to go in a completely different direction, (laughs) Uh, because this series was built on the wisdom of the Sabbath. Today, we're going to talk about the spiritual truths behind the Sabbath. What does God want us to fundamentally spiritually get out of the third commandment, rather than how should we live a wise life in light of the Sabbath? And so we're going to answer two questions today. They're the two points that are on your notes sheet, if you have one of those. What is the Sabbath for New Testament Christians? And then secondly, how do we practice that Sabbath as New Testament Christians? Christians. So first, what is the Sabbath for New Testament Christians? Um, First of all, we probably just have to define the term. Uh, Sabbath is a Hebrew word that means rest. Uh, God said to his people that every week on Saturday you would rest. You heard it in the commandments, you would not do any work at all. And this was built on the premise that God had created the world in six days and on the seventh day he had rested from all of his work. And so he commanded his people to take a rest day as well. But not only was it a day off of doing any work, it was also supposed to be a day of worship. Uh, Maybe you caught it when you read the Deuteronomy text. It says that this is to be a Sabbath to the Lord. In other words, it's an act of worship to give up all the things that we work on in our normal lives, all the things that distract us and take our attention and to focus our hearts on God. So the Sabbath was a all-day, on-Saturday, worship and rest day. Which should bring up an important question in your mind right away, which is, why don't we do that? I mean, here we are, and the last time I checked, it's not Saturday. 
And if you guys go back to your homes and maybe do some yard work or even go to your job this afternoon, I'm not going to tell you that it's a sin. So what gives? Because if you look at the rest of the commandments, we understand that the the commandments have deeper truths beyond just the words that are on the page, right? Like, you shall not murder doesn't just mean you shall not murder. It also means that you would protect your neighbor's body and your own body and care for them as gifts from God. But it still means you shouldn't murder. Like, that's not saying that as long as you're just taking care of bodies, like, you can kill anybody you want, right? The, The commandment still stands, even though there's a deeper meaning behind it. But why not here? We're going to talk about what the deeper meaning is behind this Sabbath, but why is it that we still don't worship on Saturday or take whole days off? Well, the answer is the Bible tells us we don't have to. If you look at the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes that you should not let anyone judge you with regard to a Sabbath day. In other words, what he says is that the Sabbath day, as it is given to us in the Old Testament, is not something by which you can judge this person is doing what God asks or this person is not doing what God asks. He actually explains why, because he says these were a shadow of the things that were to come, which are now found, the reality is found, in Christ. In other words, he says that thing has value insofar as it points us ultimately to the reality that Jesus brings. Or to say this in a maybe more colloquial way, if you're video calling with somebody and that person walks in the door, you're going to put the phone down and you're going to interact with them personally because they're there, they're real. And it's not that you weren't actually talking to them on the phone, but there's something more full, there's something more human about when they walk in the door and you talk to them in person. God says that Old Testament teaching, it has something to teach us. But it has to be read, it has to be understood in the light of the reality that Christ has come. So if that's our understanding, then we have to say, okay, well, what is this reality that Christ has come going to teach us about the Sabbath day? How are we as Christians going to understand this commandment? And to do that, we're going to go to that Hebrews text that we looked at a little bit earlier in service from Hebrews 4. We're not going to read the whole thing again. We're just going to focus on the middle section where where the author gives us his main point. This is what you're supposed to understand about Sabbath. He says, Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So to understand what the author is saying, you have to understand a little bit of history. God had given this Sabbath day to his people, but they had promptly not observed it. And so God said, you didn't enjoy the rest that I was offering to you in that Old Testament Sabbath command. And so now that Christ has come, I'm giving you a different rest, a different type of rest. It's not not go to work on Saturday. It's a Sabbath rest that I'm calling today. He's calling it today. It's not just Saturday or Sunday, it's today. Um, Maybe some of you might have something like this in your house. My dad, when I was growing up, he had a coffee mug that said, I only play golf on days ending in Y. It's kind of like that, right? Like, if the day is today, which it is, and guess what? Tomorrow is going to be today when you get there, and Tuesday is going to be today when you get there, then you should hear his voice and find his rest. Today is the day that you get rest. And so God says that that Saturday thing, that one day a week, that's no longer what we're talking about. We're talking about the ability to hear God's voice, which by the way, you can do any day that ends in Y. And so he continues, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later of another day. 
There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. So let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example, that's those Old Testament believers, their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and judging the thoughts and attitudes of the heart." What the author says is that the way to experience the Sabbath rest in the New, uh, New Testament, the New Covenant, is to hear God's word. If you're taking notes, that's the fill in the blank that starts this whole thing off. The New Testament Sabbath is hearing God's word. And on a just practical level, you can kind of understand this. Remember we said the Sabbath day for the Old Testament Christians was a day of worship. It was a Sabbath to the Lord. For many of them, that was the only time in their week that they were going to hear God's word. Because the access to the scriptures as written down was, was very uncommon, and many of them couldn't read them anyways, if they, were, have, if they did have access. And so for many people, they weren't able to hear God's word unless they showed up at the temple or the tabernacle or the synagogue or wherever on the Sabbath day. Now you have access to the scriptures all the time. You can download a free app on your phone and have access to the scriptures. And even if you can't read, you can have somebody read them to you on that app. We have the scriptures all the time. And so on days ending in Y, today, you can hear God's word. But there's even a deeper truth behind that. It's not just that we have access to God's word any day of the week, but that God's word does something really special. It gives us rest in the very hearing of it. And I want to show you two ways in which that's true. Um, The first is that God's word is not about God doing stuff for you. Instead, or excuse me, it's about God doing stuff for you. It's not about you doing stuff for God. Pardon me. Uh, what many people think is that the Bible is a, a book that tells us how to do stuff for God, how to be faithful to God, how to earn points with God, how to be a good person so that God will like us. But the Bible is fundamentally not about that message. The Bible is about God doing stuff for you. The story is actually God's story. If you were to analyze this in your English class, you would say the protagonist of the story of the Bible is God. God is the one doing all the actions for the sake of us. We are merely the secondary or even tertiary characters in the story. God is the one who this story is about. It's about God doing things for you, and therefore, there's rest. We intuitively get this because we understand politicians. Uh, What politicians do is they make you promises to take care of things that you on your own can't handle. Like, I can't, on my own, in my current vocation, handle foreign policy, or handle the economy, or handle our healthcare system. And so what a politician will do is he will offer that I'll take care of that thing for you, I promise I'll do well, trust me, and then I'll presumably vote for him. Now, of course, we know that that is really difficult for it actually to play out that way, and that's because sin has corrupted the world around us. But the the premise is what I want you to meditate on. That somebody offers that I can take care of things for you which you cannot take care of for yourself. So trust me. But unlike many politicians, God actually follows through on his promises to take care of things for you. And you know what those things are? Everything. God promises to take care of everything. Like whatever your heart worries about, whatever keeps you up at night, whatever makes you sad or disappointed or angry or frustrated, God says, I got that. Trust me. Like is it your physical body? Your physical body which doesn't work the way it's supposed to? Or you're starting to feel pains that you never felt before? The sicknesses won't go away. The mental illness is debilitating. You're getting closer to death. You know that there's only maybe single digits of years left in your life. And you worry about that. God says, I got that. 
Not only am I going to keep you alive as long as I need you to be here to bless your neighbor, but when you die, I'm going to give you a completely new body, perfect in every way, uncorruptible, lives forever, everything that was supposed to be. Some of you are worried about the society around you, whether it's an economic worry or a social worry or a cultural worry. God says, I got that. First of all, do you know the Proverbs say that God holds the hand, or holds in his hand the heart of a king? That all the things that God allows the rulers of this age to do, he does for the good of the church. And by the way, if economic prosperity starts to tank for us, you remember that God says that anybody who's willing to give up anything for the kingdom of God is not going to receive anything less than a hundredfold what they've given up. And by the way, there are the mansions that are prepared for you in heaven, the places that God has made for those who trust in him. They're yours. They have your name on them. The keys are just waiting for you. And and the culture, sure, the culture could be getting worse, more sinful, more evil. But remember that God is the one who says, first of all, I am the one who watches over my people and even uses evil events to catalyze my people, to strengthen my people, to give them an opportunity to make the good confession of the the resurrection of Jesus. And even if that doesn't help, remember that God is wiping this whole place clean at the end of time, recreating the new heavens and the new earth the way it was always supposed to be, and you're going to be the first inhabitants. Life will be perfect. And you could go down any other number of lists of things that bother you. Maybe it's that you, you realize that you're not good enough because you haven't done what you set out to do with your life or, or you've messed up the opportunities that you've had to be the person that God has called you to be and those things weigh on you and God would again say, I've got that, I died for that, it's forgiven, you're free. Or any number of other things. God's got it. He's got it all. And so you don't have to worry. You can rest your souls with the worry of those things. You could simply go about your life in the freedom of knowing that all those things that I need, I've already had taken care of in Christ. I am now free with the time and energy and resources that I have to be a blessing to everybody else because everything has been taken care of for me. I can rest. But God's word gives us another type of rest. God's word is God knowing all of us and still loving us. Do you notice in the text that that the way the author of the Hebrews describes God's word is like a double-edged sword. Why do you think he uses that phrase, double-edged sword? Why couldn't he have just said sword or knife or some other sharp implement? He says double-edged sword, and what the commentators will mostly say is that this is a reference to God's two words that he speaks to us. Most often they're called law and gospel. Law is God's condemnation of us our inability to live up to his demands to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. The 10 commandments are law. Live up to these things and every one of us has to admit I absolutely have not even come close. God says because you have failed to live up to my standard of being perfect, you deserve to go to hell forever. That is the law. And he speaks the gospel, which is that everything that you need in Christ you already have. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has come again for you, and it didn't depend on you, it still doesn't depend on you. He decided to do it not because you were getting better or because you cleaned your life up, but because he is gracious and loves you unconditionally. And that all of that failure that you have piled up against God's law, it is wiped clean with the blood of Jesus. So that when God looks at you in your baptismal grace, he sees a person who is everything that he has ever wanted, not because you are, but because Christ is. Which means that it is not something you can lose, because it doesn't depend on you. And both of those messages are absolutely necessary to find the rest. Because let's just meditate for a moment. What if you only had one? What if you only had a God who spoke law to you? Here are the rules. 
live up. You would never find rest. You constantly be running around trying to find the next thing in God's law that you can get a little bit better at, clean up, maybe make up for the places where you failed in the past. You frankly would be like just about every other religion out there in the world. It says that here are the pillars, here are the tenets, here are the commandments, here's what you got to do in order to be good enough for God. So much so that if you would ask, I'd pretty much say just about any other religious person in the world today, are you sure you're going to go to heaven or nirvana or whatever they think the afterlife for them is? If they actually believe what their religions teach, teach, they have to say, I hope so. I don't know. I hope so. I might have been good enough. I think I maybe am good enough. I'm trying really hard. I'm better than most. But I don't know. But you have the gospel. The gospel, which you can say, is the absolute certainty that, yes, I will be saved on the last day because it doesn't depend on me. It depends on Christ for me. But before we revel in that for a second, let's just think about what the alternative would be. Like if you had a God who only spoke gospel to you and not law, you'd have a God who would say, you're good, I love you, you're awesome, I accept you, you're brought in. But you would constantly be worrying, well, what about that stuff that I did? I don't watch a lot of TV, but the trashiest TV by far that I watch, uh, and maybe I'll need somebody to absolve me after this, so hopefully you all feeling pretty forgiving today, but is The Bachelor or The Bachelorette? It's a terrible show, and everything is wrong with that show. But one thing that I, I think is really interesting about that show is that for as terrible as all those folks are at dating and marriage and love and the whole thing, they understand something really important. They understand that you cannot be truly loved unless you are known. They understand that in the 10 weeks that the show is filmed, you could pull the wool over somebody's eyes. You could put up a facade of being a pretty good person, a person worth marrying, and at the end you could get down and give somebody Neil Lane's diamond ring, and, and you could get married to somebody who you don't even know. And so two of the words that show up the most often in this show are authenticity and openness. Because they intuitively understand for all of their flaws that in order to be truly loved, you need to be truly known. It's even better with God and way less trashy. God knows everything about all the terrible things that you have done or all the failures that you have not come through on. He knows you to the bottom, to the darkest things that you maybe have never told anybody and he loves you all the way to the skies. You are far more wicked, far more depraved, far more corrupt than you can possibly imagine. And you are far more loved than you would ever dare hope. And because you have that, you have rest. You have the ability to not live in the constant worry that I need to prove myself to God, or the constant worry that he's going to find out about all the things that I can't do. You know what makes me, this makes me think of? Is sometimes you'll see this you're at like a coffee shop or maybe a restaurant. There'll be a couple, and they've obviously been married for a number of years, and they're just sitting there, and they're not talking at all. And maybe it's because they're in a loveless marriage, and they're in a fight, and they hate each other. But I prefer to have a more positive spin on it, which is just that they're super comfortable around each other. Like those of you who are married, maybe you know this. You just sit at the table, and it's not awkward. It's not uncomfortable. It's just, I don't know. I got nothing to say today. Because you have rest. You have rest in that relationship of knowing that that person knows you and you're not trying to prove anything to them. Like you go on a date with somebody, you're not married, you go on a date and you just spend a whole bunch of time not talking, that's called awkward or maybe creepy and you're not getting a second date. But in marriage, it's beautiful because it shows the trust that two people can have for each other when they know each other and love each other unconditionally. You have that with God. That God knows you to the bottom and loves you to the skies. This is the word, the, excuse me, the rest that the word offers to you. When you hear it, you can find that rest. 
of knowing that you're accepted not because of who you are, but because of who God is. So then how do we practice this? How do we get this word into our ears and into our souls so that we would not harden our hearts any day that ends in why? Martin Luther gives us a really good explanation to this command, and he explains it this way. He says that we should fear and love God, that we hold God's word sacred and gladly hear and learn it. He doesn't really put time parameters on it. He just says that we would see it as the most important thing in our life, sacred, and that we would gladly hear and learn it, which we'll unpack a little bit later. So I broke down the, the way that we practice the Sabbath as New Testament Christians into three points. There are three points on your note sheet. The first one is that we're going to practice it today. Today. You saw it in the text, right? Today is the day that we should not harden our hearts against God's word. Any day that God speaks is a day that we should hear him. Um, at the very least, this means that we should be in worship every Sunday. Right? Because God is here and God is speaking. And you know it. It's happening because we plan it every single week. I'm going to come up here as God's called servant, open his scriptures, and speak for him. And that can be hard because, you know, North American Christians, North American people in general, really want to have a consumer relationship with institutions. We kind of want to say, well, I'll pick and choose when I'm going to take whatever they're giving. But it can't be that way in here. You can switch your grocery store whenever you want. You can switch your insurance provider whenever you want. But when God is talking, you should be here. But I think, actually, this goes a little bit farther. Because it turns out Sunday is not the only today. Right? We said Monday is going to be today, tomorrow. And Tuesday is going to be today in two days. God's word should be a part of every day of our life. And so how is that going to look for you? Is it going to look like a daily devotion? Is it going to look like a conversation with the family around the table? Is it going to look like podcasts on the way to work? Is it going to look like YouTube videos that you're watching in your spare time? Is it going to look like a Christian book that you can take some time to really meditate on? Is it just going to be reading scripture in a life group with other Christians? How are you going to hear God's word today? You know, it's out of the book of Hebrews, about six chapters later, where the author will say a verse that many pastors quote in order to tell their people, you should be in worship every Sunday. He says, we should not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but, but continue to meet all the more as we see the day approaching, spurring one another on toward love and good deeds. And that's absolutely about being in worship every Sunday, but very frankly, I think it's about being together more than every Sunday. The Christians would be regularly meeting together and encouraging one another, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs so that the word of God can dwell among us richly. So is it today? We should hear God's word. And that, by the way, as we finish this point, is why one of the commitments that we as members of Cross of Life make to our church is that we're going to be in worship every Sunday. Uh, many of you have seen the membership commitment uh, sheets that we have at the back. You can look at those later. But what we as a congregation are committing to is we're going to be in worship every week because that's what God calls us to. We're free. We're no longer slaves. We don't have to. But God has said this is what it means to live a flourishing spiritual life that we find God's word a priority, sacred, and that we gladly hear and learn it. So we hear God's word today. Secondly, we hear God's word together. We hear God's word together. As you look at the Ten Commandments, you find out that the third commandment is the longest of all the commandments. And that's because of that long list of all the people who are not allowed to work on the Sabbath day, right? It's your sons and your daughters and your ox and your donkey and your male servants and so on. 
I think what God is doing in that section is making sure that we understand the togetherness of the Sabbath day. That the Sabbath day is not something we just do on our own. It's not something that we do in our own time. It's something that is done together. The whole nation, or in our case, the whole church, all together at the same time. Again, that means you should be here for worship, but I think it means something even more than that. Since the Sabbath day is not so much about gathering on Sunday morning, it's about being in God's word, do you have other Christians who are speaking God's word to you? Like outside of Sunday morning, when I get your attention for half an hour or so, are there people in your life who you've authorized to speak God's truth to you? Are they family members? Are they friends? Are they people in your life group? Our temptation as North American Christians is to think we can kind of do faith on our own. We don't need to have other people. But the Bible says that's absolutely not the case. Charles Wesley, I think, is the one who said it. The Bible knows nothing of singular religion. Right? I, I can't do this by myself. And by the way, you intuitively understand this because you put your kids in school and you have managers at your job. Like, why do we put our kids in school? Why don't we just give them a stack of textbooks in a room and say, hey, we'll see you when you're 14 and we'll give you a job. Because we understand that growth doesn't happen unless there is encouragement and accountability. That even if we just gave the kids all the information, they would need somebody who was watching over them and helping them take the steps down the path to growing in whatever they're learning. Why do we have managers or supervisors at work? Why don't we just say, figure it out, and we'll pay you on the end of the week. Because we understand that work doesn't get done, and frankly, our sinful hearts will avoid it at all costs, unless we have others to encourage us and hold us accountable. But for some reason, like, that principle just goes away for us with church. We're like, well, I can just kind of do it on my own. I can be a Christian by myself. I don't need to be encouraged or held accountable or helped to grow. But God says this is a together experience. We do this for one another. And so whether that's a life group or whether that's a person in your life who you authorize to speak God's word clearly to you, to convict you of your sin and give you the gospel, we, study, we uh, excuse me, celebrate the Sabbath together. Which brings us to the last point, which um, when you become a pastor, you sign a document that says that you absolutely have to use alliteration in all of your sermons. And I failed this week, and it's just gonna, it's gonna grind me inside, and I might have to give up my pastoral license. But the last point here is that it would be thoughtfully, oh, that felt bad, to get it together and thoughtfully. Um, we're, we are gonna ce- celebrate Sabbath thoughtfully, though, and you can see this right from the text again. Do you notice the last verse of what God says to his people in Deuteronomy 5? After he lists all the people who can't work, he says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Therefore, I command you to observe the Sabbath day. Now, on one level, you can say, what God is telling us to do in the Sabbath is to remember that we're not slaves, that we don't have to. But I would even go a step further back from that and just say that on the Sabbath day, God wants us to remember He wants the Sabbath day to be a day of thoughtfulness, of reflection, of meditating on what God has done for us. Now, in our case, none of us were slaves in Egypt, as far as I know, but every one of us was a slave to sin, and the gospel has set us free. And that gospel comes to us in the 66 books of the Bible, which God has compiled for us by his grace, and continue to preserve so that we can hear his word any day that ends in Y, for the sake of finding the rest that he wants for us. So let's remember. This is, by the way, the reason that I give you note sheets. Um, I give you note sheets because the science is absolutely conclusive on this, that if you write something down when you hear it, you are more likely to remember it. 
You can remember some things if you're told like seven to 10 times, but the sad fact is that I only really get to tell you some things once a year in some cases. That's why I encourage you to write them down so that you can be thoughtful about what I tell you on a Sunday morning. Not because I need the, the pat on the back of my sermon being so interesting, but because God is talking here and we need to be thoughtful. I realize some of you don't want to take notes. I'd encourage you to try it, but if really you can't for whatever reason, then where's your thoughtfulness about God's word going to be? Is it going to be listening to the sermon back again so you can hear it multiple times? We publish it in podcast form and YouTube videos. Is it going to be a conversation with your family on the drive home about the sermon? I give you three questions at the bottom of the notes sheet, three questions that help you meditate on these things together. Is it going to be asking me a question about that, whether at the end of the sermon when I say you can ask a question or sometime during the week as you continue to think about it? It doesn't really matter exactly how you do it, but it matters that you do it that we hear God's word and we meditate on it together and today. So before we finish, I said every week I'm going to connect these things back to the first commandment because all the nine commandments that come after the first are just an unpacking of that first commandment. The first three commandments are sort of linear in their logic. God says, here's who I am. You shall have no other gods before me. And you know my name. You know what I've done for you and why I have the right to be your God. So continue to hear that name in the third commandment. Continue to hear my word so that you know who I am so that you don't lose me as your God. You know, pastors have this way of, of making sure we follow up on people who don't go to worship. And sometimes I think the folks who come to worship, they get kind of annoyed by that. Like, why are you texting me? Why are you calling me? Why are you asking me why I haven't been to worship in a while? It's because of this truth. That we understand that, yeah, it might just be one Sunday. But that one Sunday is one step on the path away from knowing who God is and giving him up as your God. And you might recover just fine. You might repent and, and that would be great. But pastors have seen enough of this happen and we love you too much to let you go even one week without hearing God's word. So let me finish with this last thought. I think someone could say, this is pretty oppressive. Right? Like, you have to come to church every week and you have to make sure a devotional life is part of your life and maybe you have to be in a life group. What if we thought about the third commandment not as a command of a whole bunch of to-dos, but a command of God to know his love? Like, if you can imagine with me a child getting tucked in for bed and their father coming over to the side of their bed and saying, never forget that I love you. Let's ask two questions. First of all, why does the father say it like that? Why does he say something so almost eternal? Never forget that I love you. Because he's trying to express something that words can't even express. A love that goes beyond human capacity that he has for his child. And then second, let's think about it from the child's point of view. When the child hears that, never forget that I love you. Is the child burdened by that command? Oh no, I better not forget. What if I forget that he loves me? Then what? No, the child hears that as the absolute declaration of the unconditional love of his parent. God says, observe the Sabbath day because God loves you so much that he can't even express it to you in words that you could understand. But he figures that if you would come and hear it enough times, you would start to scratch the surface of the depth of his love for you. So when you hear God say, be here every Sunday, be in your Bible every week, be with other Christians in community around my word. All he's saying is, I love you so much you can't fathom it, but let me try to communicate it to you. Let's pray.
God, give us the faithfulness to come back to your word and by your Holy Spirit, inspire us to greater faith and good deeds as a result. Help us to find your word to be something gladly, gladly taken in, that we would take time to learn it, to meditate on it, to thoughtfully receive it, that you would drive away the devil and his demons with their temptations that we don't have time or we need more sleep or we've been here there for the last couple weeks or whatever the excuse may be. And we pray that because your word is living and active, that it would work among us, not just to convict us of our sin and set us free in the gospel, but to become the language that we speak to one another in this community so that the work that you want to get done can happen. We ask that all in your name. Amen.